Well, friends, we are back this week into a sermon series through the parables of Jesus Christ. Not a long series. We've selected, the elders have, seven parables or sets of parables of Christ to consider on Lord's Day mornings for the coming weeks. This is the second of seven sermons in the parables. And two weeks ago, the first sermon of this series, I acknowledged that many of us are very familiar with the parables. Many of us in this room, in the Lord's kindness, grew up very acquainted with them. I joked about, even as a young child, I didn't really joke, I just commented on the fact that I can remember watching McGee and Me videos and things like that with friends and family. And the question for us is that even though we're familiar with the parables, we always want to be sure and seek by God's grace to understand his word rightly. So we should ask ourselves, have we rightly understood the parables of Christ? What are the parables? What are they for? What is their purpose? Those are good questions. The parables of Jesus describe things as they really are particularly when it comes to sin and redemption. Jesus communicates in the parables redemptive historical realities to us. In some cases, Jesus uses parables to point out what's really happening in Israel, in the day in which he is speaking, and also to highlight things that have been happening in Israel for centuries upon centuries before. Jesus uses the parables to teach about the kingdom of God so that we might understand how the kingdom of God is established. So that we might understand how the kingdom of God works. Because let's be real, the kingdom of God does not work like we think it would. The parables force us to ask the question, where do I stand in relation to this kingdom of God? The people who would have heard Jesus tell these parables, his audience, they were meant to see themselves in the parables. And the same is true for us. We are meant to see ourselves in them. We are meant to come away from hearing of the parables and think, he was talking about me. It's very much like the situation we read of in 2 Samuel 12 when the prophet Nathan comes to David. Many are familiar with that story. And David is indicted through the parable that Nathan the prophet tells him. And Nathan then says to David, you are the man. That's how it should be when we hear the parables of Christ. He was talking about me. The parables in that sense, saints, serve as a kind of mirror for us. They expose our hearts. They serve then to crush self-righteousness and pride. They are far more than morality tales. They're far more than some Christian version of Aesop's fables. They are far more than Jesus simply looking at us and saying, hey guys, you need to do better. They are about God's kingdom. They are about God's law. They are about God's gospel. 
The parables of Jesus ultimately serve to drive us to the one who is telling them. They put the onus on us to see our sin, to despair of our own righteousness, and to trust Christ for salvation. So with all of that by way of introduction, open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew 21. We're going to be looking today at Matthew 21 and verse 33 through Matthew 22 and verse 14, the parable of the tenants and the parable of the wedding feast. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't worry about that. We're going to get the words to the text on the screen behind me. You will be helped to follow along. As you're turning in your Bibles, just a few words of context in terms of the gospel of Matthew and where we find these parables situated. The chief priests and the elders have just challenged the authority of Jesus. They have asked him, by what authority do you do these things that you do, and who gave you that authority? And Jesus, brilliantly as he often does, pivots the whole situation and turns it around on them, and he says, okay, I'm going to ask you a question, and if you tell me the answer, I'll then tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? The chief priests and the elders, they deliberate amongst themselves and they're like, you know, we can't, can't really answer this because he's kind of, he's caught us here. We're trapped either way. And so they tell him, I, I, we don't know whether the baptism of John was from heaven or from man. So Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. That's just occurred. Jesus then in that same setting tells a parable about two sons Chief priests, elders, those assembled hearing him. He says, a father asks one of his sons to go work in the vineyard for the day. And that first son responds that he's not going to go. But then he ends up later changing his mind and going to work anyway. Then the father goes and asks his other son to go work in the vineyard for the day. And that son says, I'll go, father. I'll do it. But then he ends up not going. So Jesus asks the audience, which one of these sons did the will of his father? And they answer, the first son, and who had gone and worked, even though initially he had said he wouldn't. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, testifying of the Christ. Remember John, he's preparing the way of the Messiah, testifying of these things. And you did not believe him, Jesus says. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And even when you saw it, even when you were able to witness it and see what the ministry of John was about, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. So that's the setting for these two parables we're going to be considering today. It's intense. The audience is assembled and Jesus keeps going. He's going to tell more parables. Which brings us to Matthew 21 and verse 33. So I'm now going to read God's word for us. This is the word of God. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, 
and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. The plan is simple. There's two parables. We're going to go through them one at a time. And then after we've done that, we're going to consider the wedding garment in more detail. And that's going to lead us right into our concluding thoughts. So two parables, a little more thinking about the wedding garment, and we'll be done. So we'll begin with the parable of the tenants, beginning in Matthew 21 and verse 33. Jesus says, hear another parable. So he's continuing on and telling parables to his hearers. He talks about a man who plants a vineyard, who sets protection around it, who outfits it appropriately, and then leases it to tenants. This, of course, is describing God, his kingdom, and the people of Israel. 
Jesus is picking up on the imagery of the prophets, particularly a passage like Isaiah chapter 5, where the people of Israel are depicted as the Lord's vineyard. So in the parable, the man repeatedly sends servants. So when you hear that, think the prophets were sent repeatedly to Israel. The servants of the Lord in the form of the prophets were sent to Israel to give the Lord's word. So the man repeatedly sends these servants to the tenants in order to be able to harvest from his own vineyard. And these servants are received poorly, some of them killed. So it was with the prophets. Finally, the man decides to send his son to the tenants, thinking they will surely respect my son. They didn't respect my servants, but they'll respect my son. But the tenants, out of hatred and envy, desire for selfish gain, in other words, out of sin, they kill the son as well. God did send his own son to his people, and his people received him not. They hated him. They despised him. They rejected him, and they killed him. Against your anointed one, your servant Jesus, there were wicked men who put him to death, said the apostles in Acts. Now, brief interjection here. This is kind of an aside, but this is important. One of the goals, one of the goals of the preaching time on Sunday morning is to help all of us better understand how to read and understand our Bibles. When we read the parables, we need to keep this in mind. The parables are not meant to be these kind of airtight one-to-one explanations of the particulars and the minutiae of everything that's going on in the kingdom of God. It's important that we understand that because if we were to nail every allegorical detail to the wall, we will draw poor conclusions sometimes. For example, it's obvious here, Jesus is depicting redemptive historical realities, the kingdom of God, the nation of Israel, the prophets sent, finally the son of God sent to Israel, all that's true. But for example, in the parable, the man says, well, surely they're going to honor my son. It's not as though the Lord was confused as to how Jesus Christ would be received. You get the point. We don't want to drive every allegorical detail to its length, to the wall, to where we would then draw poor conclusions. We don't want to get our charts out, right? in order to start explaining the parables, where this equals this and this equals this. We don't want to overcomplicate the matter. Jesus uses the parables to make big points about sin and redemption, about law and gospel, and about the kingdom of God. So the big point is what we need to cling to. And that's what he's doing even here. Jesus asks his own audience. He said all this. These people finally have killed the son of the man who owns the vineyard. And he says, so what's he going to do? The owner of the vineyard, the man, when he comes back, what's he going to do? And they answer, he's going to put those wretches to a miserable death. And he's going to let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. This is one of those times where people spoke better than they knew. God would come in judgment on his people, Israel. The nation of Israel, as founded under the old covenant, that's important, would be brought to an end at the hand of the Romans. 
and the keys to the kingdom of God would go to Christ's apostles who would establish the church, which is made up of people from every people, tribe, language, and nation, both Jew and Gentile. Jesus makes that plain again in verse 43. But in verse 42, Jesus cites Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23 in particular. He says, the stone, he's quoting it, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And he looks at the audience and he says, have you ever read that? Have you ever read that? These verses from the Psalms are talking about him. That's why he asks the question. He's telling a parable about the kingdom of God and about redemption. He's telling a parable about how the house of God is going to be built, and he is the cornerstone of that structure. And he asks, have you ever read this? These verses about the salvation of God's people that the Messiah would accomplish. About the fact that the Messiah would become that foundation stone of the entirety of the house of God. He ever read about how those who are building the Lord's house here, the people of Israel, have rejected that cornerstone that God gave them for the house. Have you ever read that? Have you ever read about how all of this, the plan of God to build his kingdom upon the cornerstone of his Christ, is the Lord's doing? And it's marvelous. Have you read that? Verse 43, Jesus states what the Lord is going to do. And in verse 44, there's a staggering statement about the place that Jesus the Messiah holds in God's economy of salvation and judgment. We know from Scripture that anyone who is in Christ by faith will never be put to shame. Amen? Amen. No one can bring a charge against those who are in Christ because they are justified on account of Him. No one can condemn those who are in Christ because Christ the judge is the one who died for them. But for those who stumble on account of Christ, though, for those who are offended by him, for those who don't see their need of him, for those who reject him, they will be broken and crushed by him. He will judge all men at the end of history. And he is a righteous judge. Verse 45. All of this was quite plain to the chief priests and the Pharisees. They weren't confused as to what Jesus was saying or who Jesus was talking about. They weren't confused as to what he meant. When they heard the parables, they understood that he was talking about them. In verse 46, we see that it was only their fear of the crowds that kept them from arresting Jesus because the crowds understood Jesus to be a prophet. The religious leaders didn't want to incite an uproar, at least at this point in time. Christ's mission was not yet fulfilled. So that's the parable of the tenets. Now let's look at the parable of the wedding feast, beginning in Matthew 22 and verse 1. 
Jesus obviously is telling another parable. He announces it. And he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Now that's a dead giveaway, right? Dead giveaway that he's talking again about redemptive historical kingdom of God realities. And he's going to use language about a king and his son and servants being sent and a wedding banquet and judgment and all that. It's very clear what he means to do. So he tells the parable, a king gives a wedding feast for his son. He sends his servants. So there's that again. The king is sending servants to call those who had been invited. So there were invitees to this wedding and then servants are sent to call them. That's helpful for our understanding of verse 14. Like just thinking about the call piece. So just kind of put that in your brain. But these people who are called by the servants of God won't come to the wedding feast. So the king sends other servants. So note that similar pattern, very much like the parable he just told. There's servants sent initially. The response is poor. There's more servants sent, even more than the first time. The response is, again, poor. Again, see it. The prophets were sent to Israel. But in spite of all of the servants coming and inviting them to the wedding feast, people don't come. Some of them even seize the king's servants, treat them shamefully, and kill them. So there's that again. And then in verse 7, we read that the king was angry. In his anger, the king sent troops and destroyed the murderers in their city. Sometime read about the year A.D. 70. In that year, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple flattened. The city burned. So then the king tells his servants to go into the main roads Go out into the highways and byways, right? And invite everyone to the wedding feast. So when we see that, we should understand this is the gospel going to the nations. Invite them all. There's something to be said for the free call of the gospel that we make to all men. Verse 10, the servants go. They do as their king told them. They went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found. And here's a word, both bad and good. Both bad and good, they gather. And the wedding hall is full. Put your eyes on verse 11. Let's read these verses again. This is sort of the climactic moment. So the wedding hall is full, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man. There's one man there he sees who had no wedding garment. He's not, he didn't show up to the wedding the way he should have. And he says to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man who doesn't have the wedding garment was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's judgment. For many are called, but few are chosen. The wedding garment is a big deal, apparently. A big deal. Anyone without a wedding garment is thrown into judgment. 
briefly on verse 14 before we move on. Many are called, few are chosen. I think even in the context of these parables, we can understand what Jesus means, taking into account the entirety of biblical revelation. There is the call of God that goes out via his servants who proclaim his word and proclaim his truth. Repent, believe the gospel, trust Christ. It's what we say. We explain these things. But there are many who do not come. And it's as we sing here often, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? The answer, "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. The only reason any of us sit here this morning trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ is because God has done that. We did not do that. We did not overcome our own corruption because we are somehow better than other people. We are simply those whom God has bestowed his love upon out of sheer grace and mercy, having nothing to do with us. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places on account of Christ Jesus from before the foundations of the world. It's the only reason we're here. And these things are above us, and we praise God. That's verse 14. We're going to move forward. We're now going to think in more depth about the wedding garment. Because again, this... This wedding garment is this pivotal thing. It is the linchpin, the hinge piece, and the climactic point of the parable of the wedding feast. And even in one sense, this section of Matthew, it's got this punch to it. So let's think about this wedding garment. Think biblical theology, the entirety of the scriptures, the plan of God from Genesis to Revelation. Think like that. At the end of it all, there's going to be a wedding. This wedding is, this is not speaking hyperbolically. This wedding is the pinnacle of the history of everything. It's the high point. It's the goal. It's the consummation of the plan of God from all eternity. This wedding is when Christ's bride, the church, will be presented blameless in the presence of God. And you need a wedding garment to be a part of it. So, the million dollar question. What is this wedding garment? And how would a person get one? Nothing more important than that, is there? To consider and to reflect on. Some people, as they exposit Matthew 22, not so much explicitly, though there may be some who do that, some people, as they teach this passage, at least imply that the wedding garment is effectively the quality of our own lives. It has something to do with our righteousness and the way that we live. The question is, is that right? Is that right? I mean, it's a big question to answer. Considering the parable even, before we go to other places in scripture to help us understand these things. Considering the parable, I don't think it's right. You have your scriptures in front of you. You can reason along with me. In verse 10 of the parable, again, just trying to take high-level truths that Jesus is telling. You have the servants of God going out into the highways and byways and calling all men, gathering good and bad alike, bringing them into the wedding. Everybody's there. 
The wedding hall is full. Then we're told about a man who did not have a wedding garment, who is thrown into the outer darkness. So in the context of the parable, there are good people, plural. There are bad people, plural, filling the wedding hall. And then Jesus communicates that there is a man who didn't have a wedding garment and therefore was cast into the outer darkness. There is no comment about all the bad people being thrown into outer darkness. The point is that there's a certain way you show up to this wedding. There's a way you need to be dressed to attend the wedding. So are there other places in Scripture that we could go to help us to understand what this might be? The answer to that, of course, is there are places we can go. It's always good to interpret one passage of Scripture using other passages of Scripture. This is one of the ways that we make sure that we are keeping ourselves sound between the ditches. Because if our interpretation of one text contradicts our interpretation of another, we have a problem. So, let's go elsewhere to Scripture as we reason together about this wedding garment. First question, let's think together about God's standard. The standard that must be met if we would be with him. Matthew 5, we're told that we must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay. Matthew 5, we're also told that we need to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. James 2, 10 and 11, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Galatians 5, 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, fill in the blank, any work of the law. If you accept circumcision, that man is obligated to keep the whole law. Deuteronomy 27, 26, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Romans 2, 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law are the ones who will be justified. So in light of all that, assess your life, honestly. Could any of us stand in the judgment in our own righteousness in any measure? Lord, if you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? Can we stand in the judgment based upon the quality of our own lives in any way? I leave that question to you. Back to the wedding garment, though. How would we ever have one? How would we ever have a garment of the quality, of the caliber, that God would look at us in that garment and say, you're welcome at the wedding. It's my joy to have you at the wedding. Revelation chapter 7 gives us some insight. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? Clothed in white robes. And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the garment, brothers and sisters. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is receiving a series of visions. He has an angel showing him things. Zechariah 3 begins with these words, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And remember, whenever we hear of the angel of the Lord or the word of the Lord in the Old Testament, that is telling us this is God the Son, the messenger of God, the voice of God. This is God the Son. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. That's what he does. He's the great accuser of the brethren. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Now, it's one of the most beautiful depictions in all of scripture of the angel of the Lord, God the Son speaking as to what he's going to do. He stands there in this vision. There's Joshua the high priest, there's the angel of the Lord, and there's the accuser, the enemy. Joshua is wearing filthy clothes. Sin, corruption, that's what we should see. He's like you, and he's like me. And what does the angel of the Lord do? He instructs, take the filthy clothes away, take them off him. He's taken away our corruption and our sin. And then he says, I have taken it. I have taken your iniquity away. And then he says, I will clothe you. I'm going to give you pure clothes to wear. Beloved, when it comes to the wedding feast, one thing is clear. You do not get in in your own clothes. Won't happen. You get into the wedding in clothes that God the Son gives you to wear. If it is somehow unclear that the work of Christ is in view in Zechariah 3, we keep reading. Put your eyes on verse 6 of Zechariah 3. The angel of the Lord, here he goes again, he's speaking, solemnly assured Joshua. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
This is what God has determined. If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. All right, that's one piece. Keep reading. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a son. Behold, this is the word of the Lord. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Now, if you were here for the Ruth series, that word should trigger something in your brain. Who is the branch? It is the promised son of David, the righteous branch that God would raise up for David, who would execute justice and righteousness in the land, whose name will be called the Lord is our righteousness. That's who he's talking about. So the Lord is, the word of God has gone out and the angel of the Lord is assuring this man, behold, I will raise up my servant, the branch, says God. For behold, verse 9, on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven facets, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. I think we know what single day is in view. When the angel of the Lord who took on flesh, God the Son who took on flesh said it's over, it's finished. Revelation 19. We're doing a little Bible drill this morning. It's good for us to do periodically. Thinking about the wedding and the wedding garment. We thought about Revelation 7. We thought about Zechariah 3. What about Revelation 19 where that wedding is written of? Verse 6. Then I heard, this is John, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There we get again, this garment of fine linen, bright and pure. But one might observe, brother, at the end of verse eight, it says that the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's true. That's what it says. How should we understand that? These are the questions you ask if you're serious about the scriptures. I mean, how do we understand that? So look at verse 8. It was what? Granted. That word means given. It was given to the bride. Granted to the church to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. Granted. By whom? Who would grant such a thing? God would grant that. That's big. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Two ways that we should understand this. Two ways to think through this. Neither of them being that we do good works in order to earn admittance into the wedding. Two pieces. One, 
quoting here from the Heidelberg Catechism, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. This is one piece of this fine linen where God looks at us in Christ. God looks at us and sees the perfect obedience, the perfect deeds of Jesus Christ when he looks at us because we've been united to him. And everything that's his is ours, including his righteous life. That's one way to think about verse 8. The second piece is that we, the saints, because of Christ, by the Spirit, we have walked in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, Ephesians 2.10. And even those works that we have walked in, that God prepared for us to walk in, question, how are they acceptable in God's sight? The answer to that is, you know the answer. Only in Christ Jesus are they acceptable in God's sight. Because even our best works are tainted with sin. They're mixed at best because of the corruption of the flesh that remains in us. But God accepts our works done in Christ by faith and even goes so far as to tell us that he will reward us for them. Saints, that is grace if I've ever heard of it. We're rewarded not because we've earned it on our own. We're rewarded on the basis of grace. What a God. So what is it that we have just heard? What is it that we have just considered and seen from the scriptures? We've seen that we can't stand in our own righteousness or our own merit. We've seen that God's law is perfect and holy and that it requires perfect obedience. We've seen that. We've been told that Jesus himself will give us his own righteousness to wear. We've been told that we will wear white robes that have been made white in the blood of the Lamb, the work of Christ to take away sin and atone for it and to provide us with righteousness. And we've been told that we will wear fine linen, bright and pure, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Linen of righteous deeds that God ordained for us and himself produces in us. It's quite a message. So question for you. This is kind of where we, we bring this down. Not sure how you're feeling. Not sure how your week has been. Just want to ask some questions probing ones potentially. You can keep thinking about these today and this week. As you sit and as we've contemplated these wonderful truths from God's word, ask yourself, do you think that you understand the teaching of Christ better as we've looked at it today? Do you think that? Do you better understand the points that Christ is making in the parable of the tenants and the parable of the wedding feast? Because if you think you do, 
You say, yes, brother, I think that as we have reasoned together according to the scriptures, I better understand what Jesus taught. Do not overlook that. That is a significant thing for your life and mine. Another question, though, perhaps even more practical. As you sit and as you contemplate Christ and what he's done for you, and as we've thought about these great truths together, and you think about leaving this place and scattering and going out and working and seeking to love your family and do all those things this week, do you want to leave this place and sin? Do you want to leave this place and go sin? And the answer to that is, of course not. I don't want to sin. I'm hearing this. I want to do what? I want to pursue good works. I want to obey. I want to walk in those things that God has prepared for me to walk in. It's pretty cool how God's word does that work in us, is it not? The proclamation of the gospel of Christ fuels and empowers sanctification. Another practical exercise. This is in some senses participatory, and I don't mean this to be super awkward, and I apologize. I don't often do these things. But if you're a member of CBC, just not in a crazy way, but just look around this room. Just look around at this room. If you're a member of this church, look around at some of these other brothers and sisters who are here today. Consider these people. These brothers and sisters have committed to walk with you in this pilgrimage called the Christian life. Just think about that. We show up here on the Lord's day because we understand that we're pilgrims on the way and that we're not yet home and that we need this and each other. Consider these dear people and how these truths of Christ and what he has done for us should inform how we live together. Think like that. There are tremendous implications, beloved, from these truths we've considered today for how we love each other, for how we seek to be patient with each other, how we bear with one another, how we endure weakness in others. There are all kinds of implications for how we seek to exhort one another, correct one another, how we receive correction from others. There are all kinds of implications for how we forgive one another because God in Christ has forgiven us. There are all kinds of implications in these truths pertaining to helping one another make it home. We seek to speak the truth to each other. The ministry of the word of God, perhaps in its most pointed form, is done right now. But the ministry of the word of God continues in the life of this congregation as we even depart this place and as we speak these words to each other. We speak words of life and truth and here's the thing, redemption. We speak words of Christ and his work for us to each other on the regular. So consider your brothers and sisters as you think about what Christ has done for us and may our collective sense of our need of Christ and our collective sense of gratitude for Christ affect how we live together. Bringing this to a close, if we were to summarize what Jesus communicates in these two parables of the tenants and the wedding feast, we could sum it up this way. God is building his kingdom. 
He is building his kingdom through and for his son. The people to whom God's prophets were sent on the whole rejected their word. Just historically, that's true. The people to whom God's son was sent on the whole rejected him. Historically, that's true. They killed him. Historically, that's true. One's entrance into the kingdom hinges upon whether one receives God's son. And one's admittance into the wedding feast at the end of history hinges on whether one receives God's son and thereby receives his righteousness to wear. We should not be surprised by that summary. That those things, in particular those last couple of pieces, about admittance into the wedding in particular, we shouldn't be surprised that that is Jesus' point that he makes. Because at the heart of that point is the heart of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is why the point that Christ makes, particularly in the parable of the wedding feast, is why we confess these words. The principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Close quote. It's why we confess, quote, God imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith, close quote. These truths that Christ communicates in these parables is why we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed what? In his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. Amen. Let's pray.